0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, and thank you for worshiping with us this morning as we study the Word of God together. And I want to welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time and ask that um, you will be comfortable with us as we study the Word. And I pray that you will, through our time together, Uh, experience spiritual enrichment as well as having a rewarding time together with us. The church leadership has agreed to reopen the church campus next Sunday, June the 7th at 11 a.m. Worship service will be at 11 here on the campus. And I would ask that you go to our website, wentinchurch.org, for the guidelines that we're going to be following uh, regarding the reopening of the campus. You'll also have reports of ministries that will be uh, conducted. Uh, Our Sunday school classes will not be meeting uh, on uh, the first Sunday, but we will be uh, teaching our Sunday school Bible study classes uh, via internet, so you'll want to go to the website to find out about that ministry, and you'll also find the sermon notes for today's sermon as well as for previous sermons uh, there on the website. If you subscribe to our website, then any new postings uh, there will be automatically sent to you. I'm happy that we are finally nearing the end of this um, restrictive guidelines uh, because of the coronavirus and that we will be coming back together. I know many of you are excited about that as well. I don't know that my wife Nancy is as excited about it as uh, most of us are. I think she's more excited about uh, the uh, hair salons and the barbershops opening up because she says, I certainly need a haircut. My hair hasn't been this long since college and that was back when Noah was building the ark. So uh, we're happy, happy that many things are opening up and, and people are feeling, feeling a little bit more free to uh, get out and get actively involved in shopping and doing business and so on and so forth. And we are certainly happy, and Nancy is too, that we are opening the church campus for worship service. I want to read from Luke chapter 1, and if you'll turn in your Bible there, please, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. We've read this passage of Scripture for the last couple of Sundays, and we'll continue to refer to this passage of Scripture over the next few Sundays as we look at the legacy of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, Will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading of his word. Jesus has left us a legacy. And as we stated last Sunday, a legacy is something transmitted or received from someone who has preceded us. Something that impacts and transforms lives. A legacy is something transmitted from someone who precedes us, that when we receive that legacy, it transforms or greatly impacts our lives. In verses 31 through 33, the angel Gabriel said to Mary... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son... And you'll call his name Jesus... He will be great... He will be called the Son of the Most High... And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David... And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever... And... His kingdom, there will be no end. So, according to this text, there are five aspects to the legacy that Jesus Christ has left us. And we looked at the first one last week, but uh, by a simple review, I want to refresh our memory that first of all, the first aspect of the legacy that he has left us is that his name is Jesus. The Hebrew Old Testament name is Yehoshua or Joshua. The New Testament Greek name is Iesus, which is a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew name, Joshua. Both names mean God saves or God is salvation. And that is underscored by what the angel Gabriel said to Joseph uh, after he met with Mary and revealed to her that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. He said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Yehoshua, Jesus, Jesus, Savior, God is salvation. In Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Peter said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, speaking to the Jews, "...which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." He is the Savior. He is salvation. Now the popular opinion today among people, both religious and non-religious, is that there are many roads to heaven... There are many ways to get to the kingdom of God. But the truth of scripture is, from Genesis all the way to the book of the Revelation, the truth of God's word states that there is only one road to the kingdom of God. There is only one way to heaven. And that road, that gate, that way is through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In John chapter 14 and verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And in John's Gospel chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the way to the kingdom of God. And those who come in through me will be saved. Everyone else goes into a door, goes through a gate, goes down a road that leads to destruction. Because those doors and those paths are laid by false prophets, false teachers, thieves, Jesus says. So, the first aspect of the legacy that Jesus has left us is his name. His name is salvation because he is salvation. But the second aspect of our Lord's legacy is that he was, and he is, and he will forever be great. He was, and he is, and he will forever be great. That's what the angel said to Mary. That he will be the son of the most high God. He will be great. His name is Jesus. So he will be great. And the word megas is the word that is used here. And it has a wide range of meanings in the New Testament. It can mean something that is large, something that is loud, something that is strong, powerful, something that is long, or something that is old, Someone of high rank. It can also mean to be sore, as in sore muscles or sore bones. It has a wide range of meaning. And we're going to explore what that means with regard to Jesus in the sermon this morning. But first, I want us to consider the idea of greatness. The idea of greatness. When we think about greatness, we often think about uh, something that is attributed to a man or to a woman who has achieved something um, above and beyond the norm. Men and women or history uh, denotes certain individuals who we consider to be or we look back upon as being great people. An individual who is exalted, an individual who is celebrated, an individual who is notorious for what he has achieved, what he has done. And such names come to mind if you just think about it for a moment. Uh, We have individuals like Ramses, the pharaoh of Egypt, Ramses the Great. He was one of the great pharaohs of Egypt. He was the great architect, the great builder in Egypt. He was of the Hyksos kings in Egypt, the warrior kings, the builder kings of Egypt. One of the great pharaohs of the Exodus. Then you have Darius the Great. He was the king of Persia who assisted the Jews in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple you have cyrus the great king of persia who decreed that the jews who were in captivity in persia he decreed that they could go home they could return to their homeland and they did according to the word of cyrus the great Alexander the Great, who doesn't know about Alexander the Great, king of Macedonia, uh, the individual who conquered the known world before he was age 40 and sat down on one occasion and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Alexander the Great. The Bible talks about Herod the Great. The king of the Jews prior to and at the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod the Great was a despot. He was a monster, if you will, a murderer. Murdered his wife, murdered his sons because he was afraid that they would overtake his throne. He was a puppet king of the Roman Empire during the days preceding Jesus. Down through history we have other individuals, some females. Catherine the Great, Empress of Russia. Then Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor of Rome. So history has recorded individuals who have achieved great things and have given that name, that adjective, to their name to set them apart from other individuals who may have also shared that name. As I was uh, thinking about the greatness of individuals, I thought about what does modern history, uh, who does modern history consider to be great today? And so I looked at Time Magazine's top 100 great individuals in recent history. Let me give you just a few of those individuals that Time Magazine considers to be great individuals. At the very top of the list is Jesus. Second, Napoleon, the great emperor of France. Third, Muhammad, the father of Islam. Four, William Shakespeare, the great poet and uh, the one who wrote these wonderful tragedies, Romeo and Juliet and so on and so forth, William Shakespeare. Five, Abraham Lincoln, the president during our own civil war. Number six, George Washington, the father of our country, the first president of the United States and a great general during the Revolutionary War. Seven, Adolf Hitler. A great orator and a great leader in Germany, even though he was a uh, satan incarnate, if you will, uh, a man completely demonic possessed, an individual who was ruthless and bloodthirsty and maniacal, eight Aristotle, one of the great philosophers of ancient Greece, nine Alexander the great, whom we 've already mentioned, and ten Thomas Jefferson one of our founding fathers and one of the great writers of early American history. And there are a, a few other notables. Let me give you uh, a few of them. Ranking number fifteen is Julius Caesar, the first great emperor of the Roman Empire. Albert Einstein is nineteenth on the list, the great uh, mathematician and scientist and physicist Albert Einstein. Ronald Reagan, our, one of our recent presidents, he ranks number thirty-two on the list. The Apostle Paul ranks thirty-four on the list of the hundred top men and women of greatness. Johann Sebastian Bach, the great composer and musician, ranks 48. King David of the Old Testament ranks 57. Tchaikovsky, the great uh, composer uh, from Russia, ranks 63. John F. Kennedy. Uh, one of the great presidents who died very early in his career, ranks 71. Robert E. Lee, the great Confederate general in the times of our Civil War, ranked 76. Michelangelo, the great artist and sculptor ranks 86, John Locke, at the very bottom of the list, John Locke, who was a philosopher and a physician and the father of modern liberalism. So there are people who are thought to be great in the eyes of American people and European uh, people and Asian people and people all across the world. But they are great and they are notable for what they have done some of them are positive, and they have achieved positive things, good things. They have contributed greatly to their times and to the society, but some of them were evil. Some of them were very negative in their attitudes, and they um, did not contribute uh, good things to their times and to their people, but they uh, destroyed and they corrupted and they ruined lives uh, in their succession to greatness. But what about greatness as it's attributed to Jesus? What about the idea of the greatness of Jesus? Many people believe that Jesus was and is more than great. He's extraordinary. He's magnificent. He is noble. He is highly notable and eminent that he is distinguished. In other words, that Jesus rises above all of the others in terms of greatness. And so I want to explore that with you for just a few moments this morning. First of all, the greatness of Jesus in see, is seen in what he has and what he will accomplish. The greatness of Jesus, like many of the others that we've already noted, the greatness of Jesus is seen in what he has and what he will accomplish. If you turn to Micah of the Old Testament, chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 4, the the prophet Micah in the Old Testament wrote, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old from ancient days he is talking about he is referring to the Messiah the one whom God would send to be the king of the Jews the one who would bring the kingdom of God to the Jews he is from old from ancient days therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, speaking to Israel, bringing forth the Messiah. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Again, John in his gospel alludes to this one who is the shepherd of the sheep, the gate to the sheepfold. Micah, many hundreds of years prior to the days of Jesus, spoke about him as being the sheep shepherd. And he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. So when we think about the greatness of Jesus and how he far exceeds the greatness of any other human being, what are some of the things uh, that we should uh, account to this greatness? Well, first of all, he is greater than than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4, the apostle writes that he, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is superior to the angels. Why? Because He is Savior. He has accomplished something that the angels could never accomplish. Angels are greater than human beings. They're greater in majesty, greater in power, greater in wisdom. They are uh, the attendants of God on high in heaven. They are the messengers and the servants of God exclusively. And yet Jesus Christ, born of a woman, clothed in human flesh is greater than the angels because he has achieved something they could not achieve, and that is salvation. He has made purification for sins. He's also greater than the angels because he created the angels. Again, angels are servants of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. Angels will one day... Bow down before Christ as Lord. They bow down before him now. But in the great assembly at the end times, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, every knee under the earth will bow before Christ when his name is mentioned, they will bow before him. He is greater than the angels. But scripture also tells us that he is greater than Abraham, the father of nations. If you go back and trace the lineage of Abraham, trace his descendants as well, you'll find that he is not only the father of the Hebrew people, he is also the father of the Arab nations. He is one of the most respected men in human history. And yet in John chapter 8 verses 56 through 58, the Jews questioned Jesus about his greatness. And Jesus responded to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people. Jesus said, I am greater than he. Before he was, I've always been. He's also greater than Jacob. Jacob. In the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you'll remember Jesus was going through Samaria and he was tired and he stopped by Jacob's well near Sychar. And as he was there, a woman came out uh, during the day to draw water from the well. Jesus asked her to give him that he was thirsty and uh, that he needed something to drink. And she said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Jesus asked her to draw water for him. They had a discussion. And he had mentioned to her that the water she was going to draw from the well would satisfy the thirst only temporarily. But the water that he could offer her was a well springing up in her to eternal life. And she asked, where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, the one who dug this well? Jesus said, the water I will give you is living water. And it's His way of saying He is greater than Jacob. The one who dug this well and gives us temporary water, Jesus said, I will give you living water. Water that will always quench the spiritual thirst. So he's greater than Jacob. He's also greater than Moses in John chapter 1 and verse 17. Jesus said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Moses, the great lawgiver of the Old Testament. Moses, the great leader of the Old Testament. Moses, the great miracle worker. Moses, the great servant of God who met with God in the tent tent of meeting face to face. He rescued the Jews from slavery and death in Egypt. He delivered them to the promised land. But Jesus is greater than Moses because he brought Grace and truth. And he delivers us from sin and death. And he delivers us not into a land that can be overtaken, can be ruled by another, which Israel was, Canaan was, Palestine was and is, but his kingdom will last forever. He's greater than King David, the greatest king of Israel, the standard by which all other kings in Israel would be measured. King David was the physical ancestor of Jesus. He was the great warrior king of the Old Testament. David was a sinful man, but he remained a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king of Israel. And yet Christ is greater than his ancestor, King David. Because in the new kingdom, in the kingdom that Jesus will bring, in the millennial kingdom that will be established after the days of the tribulation, King David will have a role in that kingdom. He will be prince of the kingdom. But Christ, Jesus, will be King of kings and Lord of lords when that kingdom comes. Jesus is greater than King David. He is Messiah, not a warrior king. He is without sin. He is king of the kings and lord of all lords. He is the greatest king of all mankind. And he will rule over a kingdom that is eternal. Not only is Jesus Christ greater than King David. He is also greater than David's son, Solomon. King Solomon, in his day, was unrivaled in wisdom and power and wealth and influence. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, the author of the book writes, Thus King Solomon excelled in all... Excuse me, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his mind. And yet in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 42, Jesus said, Someone greater than Solomon is here among you. Jesus, who exceeds... Solomon in wisdom, in power, in glory, in influence. Greater than Solomon. He's also greater than Jonah. Jonah, you'll remember, was a reluctant prophet in the Old Testament. He was a disobedient servant of God. He was a racist because he believed that Jews were superior to every other group of people on the face of the earth he was a bigot he was intolerant of anyone that had a difference of opinion or a difference of belief or a different religion God sent him to go to Nineveh and to preach the judgment of God and you remember that Jonah refused to go because again he was a racist he was the bigot he he felt like the Ninevites needed to be destroyed because of their wickedness and so he ran off to uh, Uh, the coastline there in Palestine, and he got aboard a ship that was sailing toward Tarshish. God sent a storm. Uh, Jonah knew and told the sailors that he was the cause of the storm, and that if they threw him over the boat, uh, God would calm the storm and everything would be all right. They did that, and Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. The great fish swam around uh, in the Mediterranean for a number of days. Three days, in fact, and then spit Jonah up upon the land. And Jonah then went to Nineveh and he preached the coming judgment of God. And as a result, Jonah became one of the greatest. Prophets in history insofar as revivals are concerned. The city of Nineveh at the time of Jonah, it is believed, had a population of some 500,000 people. Half a million people. And scripture tells us that at the preaching of Jonah, the entire city repented of their sin. So he was a prophet of one of the greatest revivals in history. He, through his preaching, saved Nineveh from destruction. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Someone greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is greater than all of these individuals that we have mentioned. He is also greater than his forerunner, John the baptizer. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15 Scripture says of John the baptizer, he will be great, same word, megas, he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John the baptizer was born, was anointed, was sent by God as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets to preach the coming of Christ and his kingdom. But Jesus is more than a prophet. Even though Jesus said in Luke 7, verse 26 through 28, that there's no one greater than John, insofar as a prophet is concerned, there's none greater. Jesus is greater still. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, fulfilling the description of who the forerunner would truly be. He would have the spirit of Elijah upon him, and yet Jesus, greater than Elijah, greater than John the baptizer. In Luke chapter 1 verse 17, his power exceeds the power of Elijah. The great prophet. Even John the baptizer himself confesses in Mark chapter 1 in verse 7 that Jesus was greater than him. He must increase, John says, I must decrease. John says he is great, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with the spirit and with power, with fire. He is a man so great, I'm not even worthy to bend down and to untie his sandal straps. He is greater than John the Baptizer. He is Messiah. John was the prophet. Jesus is the Son of God, not just the Son of Man. He is the Christ, not just the forerunner of Christ, which John was. He is Lord and Savior. So Jesus is greater than all of these individuals for what he would be able to accomplish and what he will be able to accomplish. John MacArthur says of Jesus, quote, His life defines his greatness. His life defines his greatness. So what has he done? that we consider him to be so great, immeasurably great, exceedingly great. In John chapter 21, verses 24 through 25, the Apostle John writes at the close of his gospel, this is the disciple referring to himself. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written... These things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, John is saying, I have written this gospel to you, and I have outlined many of the things that Jesus said and that Jesus had done. But there are so many more things that he has said, and so many more things that he has done, that if If I were able to write them down, the world couldn't contain the books. And so we can't even begin to scratch the surface, to scale the heights of the things that Jesus has said and done. But I do want to give a few before we reach our final point. In the context of time we know that he was great because he preceded time. John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says that he is eternal. He's always been the eternal Christ. He has always been in the presence of the Father before the universe was created. But in the context of time, let's look at some of the things that Jesus has done. First of all, he's creator of the universe. I don't know of any other individual Who can claim that? As a matter of fact, man can't create anything. Man can only remanufacture what's been created. He can only manipulate the things that have been created. But Jesus, along with the Father, along with the Holy Spirit, created the universe. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in concert with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, Christ was actively involved in the creation of the universe. He laid down the foundations. He laid down the superstructure. And he laid out the contents. Of the known universe. It's also stated here in these verses. That he is the author. And he is the source of life. In him all life exists. And it also states that he is the author. And the source of light. That is a metaphor that John uses. To uh, speak about. To talk about wisdom. And understanding. And emotion. And will. So here in These few verses we have an understanding of the greatness of Christ because he is creator. But also note his activity in creation. Throughout the Old Testament, we have what theologians call theophanies or Christophanies. These are the appearances of God to mankind in human form. There are many Christophanies, the pre-incarnate Christ, who appears to individuals throughout the Old Testament and we will not mention uh, many of those, but he appeared to Abraham uh, to reinforce the promise that uh, he would bear a child in his old age, uh, and that he would be the father of the promised, through whom the promised Messiah would come. He appeared to Joshua as Joshua was getting prepared to uh, march against Jericho. He walked with Enoch. He appeared to uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He was with um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in Babylon. Many appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, Christophanes. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, we have... Um, A saying of Jesus that helps to underscore the fact that he is sovereign over the universe that he has created. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus was saying, Everything that goes on in creation, I am aware of. A sparrow does not fall from the sky that I'm not aware of that. He is in sovereign control over his creation. In Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, the apostle Peter preaches... To the Hebrews and he says you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And he was reminding the Hebrew people that when Jesus walked among them, he was a man of great wisdom. People were dumbfounded at his wisdom. He was one greater than the wisdom of Solomon. They were well aware of the things that Jesus had done how he could turn water to wine, how he could take five loaves and Two fish and multiply it to feed 5,000 plus people. How he could walk on water. How he could touch the eyes of the blind and cause them to see. How he could speak the word and cause the lame man to walk. How he could call out the name of Lazarus and he would rise from the dead. They were well aware of the works of Jesus And yet one greater than Elijah, one of the greatest miracle workers of the Old Testament, Jesus far exceeded in power. And even his own disciples were reminded that Jesus could not be deterred from the will of God. That when the people rose up to declare Jesus as their Messiah and king, he refused because he was not that kind of Messiah. He was not going to be a political Messiah. He was not going to be a warrior king that would fight the Romans and free Israel and return them to the glory days of old. He refused because it was not his father's will to be that kind of Messiah. And even when Jesus spoke to his disciples about going to Jerusalem and offering his life as a sacrifice that he would be turned over to the elders of Israel and they would crucify him, Peter stood in front of him and declared that that was not going to be so, but Jesus rebuked him. Because Jesus was focused on the will of God, not on the will of man. And so one greater than David was among them. David desired to do the will of God, but at times David failed in accomplishing God's will. Jesus never failed in anything that the Father would have him do. And offered, willingly offered his life as a sacrifice for sin but not only Is His greatness seen in the days of the flesh that He is here? He will also be great in the future. He will reign over a kingdom that is yet to come. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul says, God has highly exalted Him, that is, exalted Jesus, and bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a time, dear friends, when the kingdom of Christ will come. Jesus appeared to bring the kingdom to the Hebrew people, to the descendants of Abraham, to the Jews. But they rejected Jesus and took him to the cross. And because they rejected him, they rejected his kingdom. But there is coming a time when that kingdom will once again appear. And this time that kingdom will be received after the days of the tribulation. That kingdom will come. And as Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, every individual on earth will bow to him as the sovereign ruler. All of the angels of heaven and all of the demons in hell will bow before him. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. His greatness will be seen in the kingdom that he will bring for a thousand years upon the earth before it is ultimately destroyed. But his greatness will also be seen as the king of the kingdom that will be forever in the new earth that will be created after the destruction of this sinful and weary world that we live in today. It'll be an eternal kingdom, a kingdom in the new earth. And we have a glimpse of that kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, where the Apostle John writes, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "'Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people.'" And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that will be inhabited by those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That new Jerusalem that descends from heaven to the new earth is the capital of that new kingdom. And Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords in that kingdom forever. The greatness of Jesus is seen in what he has done and what he will do. But secondly, the greatness of Jesus, and more importantly, the greatness of Jesus is seen in who he is who he is. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. The book of Colossians chapter 1. My father in the ministry, George Findlay, called the book of Colossians the crown jewel of the letters of the Apostle Paul because it focuses uh, on the greatness of of Jesus Christ. It is the crown jewel of the letters of the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 1, there are no less than ten words that describe the greatness of Jesus for who he is. And I want to look at them very briefly. I want to show them to you. In verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the manifestation of who God truly is in wisdom, in power, in glory, in sovereignty, in will, in purpose, in essence, in character, in nature. He is the physical manifestation of the eternal God. He is the image of God. Again, in verse 15, it states that he is the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that Jesus was created He is not a creation of God. He is the eternal Son of God. One with God in essence, character, and nature. One who shares with God eternalness. So what does the word firstborn mean? It means first in preeminence. He is first in preeminence. And the allusion here is to that he was part of the creative work of God. He was involved in creation along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was not the product of creation, but he produced the creation along with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And verse 16 clarifies that, "...for by him all things were created." If all things were created by him, how could he be created? He would have created himself, an impossibility. So firstborn of creation does not mean he was the first thing created. That means he would have created himself. No, he is preeminent in creation. He is above creation. Why and how? Because he is the one who created. He is creator. Verse 17. Not only all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things, so he existed prior to creation, and he created all things. So in verse 17, he is eternal. And yet John the Apostle declares that very same thing in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He is eternal, as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit is eternal. But also in verse 17 and verse 18, he is also head of the body. Well, in verse 17, in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord over creation. God has given to him all authority and all power as the sovereign Lord of creation. Verse 18, he is the Lord of the church. And this is something that we have to be reminded of again and again and again. Wynton First Baptist Church is not my church. And I know people say that from time to time. Well, that's Pastor Martin's church. No, it's not my church. And it's not your church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. The church belongs to him. He is the head of which we are the body. And then in verse 18, he is the Lord of power and authority. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, the word firstborn, preeminent. He is the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. Scripture says he is the first fruits of the dead. He is the first one produced in the resurrection never to die again. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He is incarnate God. He is God in the flesh. And then in verses 20 through 22. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his flesh excuse me, in his fleshly body that through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He is Redeemer. He is the one who has redeemed us from sin. He is the one who has saved us from judgment. He is the one who has given us opportunity, power, and the right to be born into the kingdom of God. And then finally in John chapter 1 verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 He is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. Jesus is the fullest possible revelation of God to man and He is God's final Word to man. God could not have spoken more plainly more clearly, more authoritatively to mankind than through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is great, and He is greater than all, not just because of the miraculous things that He has done, not just because of the wisdom that He taught, not just because of the will of God that He performed perfectly but he is greater than all because of who he is. Jesus has left the world a legacy. He is the only true Lord and Savior anointed and sent by God to save man from sin. And he is the only one who is truly great for what He has done, and for who He is, the only begotten Son of God and Savior of mankind. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank You for Jesus, the name above every name, the name that represents the individual before whom everyone will bow and declare to be Lord and God. I thank you that he willingly left the courts of heaven and came clothed in human flesh to give us a true understanding of who you are, to be the example before us of who we should be before you, the one who willingly gave his life on a cross, died shedding his blood that our souls might be purged from sin. The one who resurrected from the dead verifying that his gospel is true and securing the victory over death for all who believe in him and receive him as Lord and Savior. Thank you for the great legacy that Jesus has left us. And I pray, Father, that we will receive that legacy again today. And in that legacy, we will be transformed. Our lives will be truly changed. I ask now, God, as we leave for the rest of the day and engage in the activities of the day, that you will give us peace. And that you will give us joy. And that, Father, you will give us hope that in the days ahead, our relationship to you will grow greater, deeper, higher, more and more meaningful, sweeter and sweeter as the hymn writer wrote, sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Bless your people that your people may be a blessing to you in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, I pray. Amen. Before we go, I want to simply say I truly look forward to meeting with you again in person as we reopen our church campus for worship next Sunday, June the 7th, at 11 o'clock, here on the corner of Myrtle and McConnell. God bless you, and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now, and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him.